and here we have it. Full, free, forever forgiveness. You, 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 that's, that's not just eternity changing, that's life changing. But we've got to get that out to young people and also a purpose to li life. Why am I here? What is there to live for? You talk to young people today who have no God. Yeah, I mean, no wonder suicide rates are going up. There is nothing worth living for, they see. They're just looking ahead to debt for decades and, and just getting on the rat race and, and just miserable lives. They see so much broken relationships and they don't want that. And again, we can come and we say, look, there's a reason to live and there's a purpose to life. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with David Murray. David currently serves as professor of Old Testament and practical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also a counselor, a regular speaker at conferences, and the author of many books, including Why Am I Feeling Like This? A Teen's Guide to Freedom from Anxiety and Depression as well as the companion book, Why Is My Teenager Feeling Like This? A Guide for Helping Teens Through Anxiety and Depression from Crossway. Today, David and I discuss how parents can help teens who struggle with anxiety and depression. He reflects on the dramatic rise in teen anxiety and depression in the US over the last few years. He offers guidance for thinking through the different potential causes of depression and anxiety. And he speaks to the parent wrestling with two questions. Did I do something to cause this? And what do I do now? Let's get started. David, thank you so much for joining me today uh, to have a, a really important conversation. Yeah, it's an important conversation. Glad to have it. And hopefully we'll be able to help people who are struggling with various emotional, mental, spiritual issues. So I don't have teens myself uh, yet. I have three kids, but they're all younger. Uh, but I'd imagine that one of the first questions that parents might have when they maybe first start to suspect that their teenager or their young, their young kid of some, some age or another might be struggling with anxiety or depression is, why is this happening? And then maybe quickly thereafter, what did I do wrong? Did, did I do something that led to this uh, happening in the life of my child? What would you say to that? Yeah, I, th I think it's a great first question. You know, what's going wrong here? It's, it's certainly very important for parents to pick up on signals that their that their kids are, are sending, noticing anything unusual, and being able to um, begin to get them help. So I think it's very important for parents to be kept in tune with their kids through the teen years, look for things like withdrawal, um, changing sleep patterns, eating patterns and just and just be prepared to ask that question because a lot of parents will actually just try and ignore it and deny it minimize it mm. i'm busy enough i don't need another problem yeah did you feel that because you have you have kids you have five kids is that right yeah five did you feel that pressure that temptation to um maybe not ask those questions, yeah, not, yeah. not push in? I mean, I think it, it applies to every area of parenting, doesn't it? You, you want things to go as smoothly as, you, as it can. So you might, oh, I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to notice that because that involves time and stress. And But, you know, actually in the long run, it saves you time and it saves you stress and it saves your kid as well. So 
I think sensitivity, a willingness to stop, sacrifice time, comfort, and, and press in on, on these issues. And yeah, parents ask, you know, what did I do wrong? We did, we've given their kids everything, and here we are, we've got wreckage. I think the first thing I would say is, don't give up. You know, every kid goes through blips and slumps and this is just normal part of abnormality in an abnormal world and I think it's to expect these things rather than view them as unusual or weird or that they actually condemn my parenting you can be the best parent in the world and your kid still runs into these issues so I think that's the, the first thing I think the second thing is also to realize there are things you just don't have any control over. The culture that we're a part of is a, is a large part of the causes of teen anxiety and depression. Your parents, you know, you can try and protect your kids, of course, but there's a lot you can't protect them from. And so you've got to accept that there are things out with your control that you are not to blame for. And, and of course, there can be a genetic component as well. But I think the third thing is to recognize, okay, it may have been factors out with my control, but let me examine myself. Yeah, let, let me have a good look at myself and, and ask myself, yeah, have I contributed to this? Oftentimes, I would say the most common area parents maybe are a bit to blame is excessive expectation, demanding extremely high performance of their kids in every area of life all through the year year after year, that can eventually have a crushing effect that just causes them to collapse. And if you have gone wrong, if you are partly responsible to confess it, go to your kid and say, look, I'm sorry, I've played a part in this. Ask your forgiveness. Let's ask God's forgiveness. Now let's get to work yeah. and, and try and work on cures. How, how do parents know if they are pushing too hard? I mean, we, we all want our kids, as, as Christians, we want our kids to grow up and to, to love God and to trust God. And also, even before they are Christians, to not do things that are going to forever, you know, uh, change their life in negative ways. And so we, we push them, we encourage them, we have high standards. You know, we, we hear a lot about the importance of consistency and discipline and, and structure. How, how do we know the line between all those good things and then pushing them too hard yep. and contributing to these kinds of, of things. Yeah. Well, I think there are there are two pressures in our society that, that actually end up in the same place. One is excessive expectation, performance-itis, where eventually the child just breaks under it. But the other extreme is, is this snowflake problem mm. where <laughs> kids are not pushed at all, they're, they're in control, they set the agenda, they set the boundaries, and there usually aren't any. And that's not good for them mentally and emotionally either. Yeah, right. right. But both extremes end up at the same place, often which is broken kids, broken minds, broken hearts. And I think the cures are, are very similar as well and maybe we can we can talk about that down the road but so I think the next thing to say is um, every kid's different so you might have your first kid they're a real high achiever high performer they're you know they're driven they've got great capacity 
next kid comes along and they just don't have that mm. and you're trying to make them like the first kid. Mm. That's so easy to, so to, easy. to assume yeah. that they're going to be just like the first kid. Right. So I think that's the first thing, to be sensitive to the nature of your child, the abilities of your child, recognize every child is unique. But the parent has to look at the basics of life. So is this child sleeping seven to eight, nine hours a night? Is the child um, socializing well, not overdoing it, not underdoing it? Um, is the child getting exercise, time for le leisure, leisure as you would say, <laughs> uh, downtime? Um, if not, if these things are going wrong, then the balance is mm. wrong. So there's some basic kind of common sense yep. things common that sense. we yep. don't want to neglect in all of this. Yep. So you've already mentioned a couple times now anxiety and depression. And it seems like in conversations about mental health for teens, but also for adults, those two topics, anxiety and depression, are often uh, discussed together. Uh, why is that? Those seem like maybe to um, someone who hasn't struggled with those things, they kind of seem like very different mm -hmm. issues. So there is overlap, but there are also differences. Basically, about 50% of people who have depression also have anxiety. So that you can see there's some overlap, but not all the time. Um, some of the symptoms, therefore, are different, and some of them are similar. So with depression, you've got kind of low mood, loss of interest, guilt, feeling you want to die. Anxiety is sort of at the other end of the scale, though. There's a worry, there's a restlessness, the person's sort of keyed up and tense and worried about the future. Um, areas where they overlap, usually sleep, um, either excessive sleep or very little sleep. Concentration usually goes very tired. And um, I think we try to understand why is there such an overlap. We go to things like... Uh, the, the genetics of a person mean that oftentimes the same area of our genes that is broken uh, manifests itself in these two areas so that both problems are sort of traceable to this one area. Mm. Is, there, is there a lot of research mm -hmm. these days that seems yeah. to point to a genetic component? There sometimes? is, yeah, and even the way that, that certain brain mechanisms work, it's evident that in people with depression, the same kind of thing is going on in the, in the brain of somebody with anxiety. I think another reason why they, they tend to come together or often come together is one often leads to the other. So if you've got someone who's very anxious and they're kind of hyper and tense and stressed and keyed up, that eventually exhausts somebody. And they, you know, eventually just they've got nothing mm. left in the tank and yeah. they slump. And it also goes the other way. If someone's really depressed, cast down, hopeless, um, then they get a lot of fears about themselves and their world and their future. And so it's a bit of a vicious circle often mm. that one leads to the other and multiplies the other and it just yeah. keeps going around. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever um, heard uh, someone describe what it's like I'm thinking of those parents who are listening who maybe don't struggle with anxiety or depression and, and would love to sort of better understand what it is their teen is, is actually feeling. Um, how would you describe what that might be like? If you've ever been in a, in a, 
in a car accident or you know you've you've come very close to a disaster say falling off a ladder or something like that you know your fight or flight system kicks in as you see a car spinning towards you or whatever <laughs> or a tree coming towards yeah. you you've got that adrenaline cortisol rush and 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 the way it's just it's the most horrifying feeling or you know somebody jumps up out from behind scares you. yeah it scares you well imagine that all the time so not just you have a bad accident 20 minutes later you're beginning to you know calm down or a few seconds later after the scare from your sister or your brother but this just keeps going and you're living in that state or if you think of like the saddest time ever in your life whether it's a bereavement or um, a great loss of some kind and again just think of living like that hopefully these images can begin to help people understand and sympathize so i think um probably many people listening right now have heard some of the statistics related to teen anxiety and depression and how that is just uh on the rise almost to um kind of crazy levels, levels that we, we have uh, never seen before, in, in the U.S. at least, in the West. Um, what's behind that? What's going on uh, on a broader level that would be contributing to that? Yeah, the, the stats are awful. The, the Something like a third of all teens will have uh, an anxiety disorder, and about 20% of teens will have depression. One in five. I mean, that's mm. that's awful, isn't it? You yeah. think of every fifteen you know. Yeah. And we're not talking about here, you know, the odd bad day or week. This is life-altering. It's incapacitating. I remember reading of one woman counselor who said that when she started counselling twenty-four years ago, one in twenty of the people who came to see her, kids came to see her, were anxiety problems. Now it's sixteen out of twenty. Wow. Wow, it's 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 horrific, and one of the one of the common responses to that would be, well, we're just diagnosing it more now, or we're just labeling it differently now. It's not actually necessarily increasing. I, you think there's any truth to that? I think there is more diagnosis, yeah, um, and I think there can be a, an element of copycat as well amongst teens. So there's there's probably some element of exaggeration there, but I think we also have to face the fact that there are real increases and there are real reasons for it. It's not coming out of nowhere. And I think the first thing is pressure. The, the level of performance required of teens today. I mean, when I was growing up, I think we had two periods of exams in the whole year lasting a couple of weeks each time very little in the way of testing assignments grading in between time so you had a good life apart mm. from f a few weeks a year <laughs> right but i mean I've, i'm raising teens and and it's every single day mm. there are tests and quizzes and papers that have life impact that are taken into account in their grades and then it's not just enough to do well academically you've got to do well in sports and it's not just getting the team. You need you've got to get a sports scholarship. And and then, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, multiplying friendships and conducting the all these friendships. And and then you've got church. And then you've got to do voluntary work as well, you know, and 
shadow people at work. You need all this to get into college. So the the pressure is a, is a huge element of, and, and obviously teens are putting themselves under a lot of pressure as well. I, I think a second area is instability. So we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, who knows where that's going, but that, that upsets teens, mm. you know, that yeah. maybe those of us older can be a bit more sober and serious, but... It's destabilizing. It's very destabilizing. And... I think it comes at the end of a couple of decades of instability since 9-11. It's a very different world. It feels very insecure compared to us, well, at least myself growing up. And and you've got school shootings. You've got family breakdown. The, all the institutions of our society seem to be cracking. Uh, political system, legal system. So there's an awful lot of instability. There's the sexual instability gender issues, confusion. Well, you know, used to you were a guy or you were a girl. And yeah. now and, and and kids, teenagers are facing so much of that pressure directly in like a public school context yeah. where where maybe a lot of us adult Christians we it's just not quite the same no. experience no. for no. us. No. So that's that's a ton of instability. Technology is a third area. The Information overload, hyperstimulation, the the social media pressure, the comparison that's going on there all the time. These are things that past generations just didn't have to deal with. Well, yeah. What do you think about social media? It seems like a lot of people point to that as the primary culprit in in this kind of stuff. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's uh, a really big factor here, or is that overplayed? The stats seem to show it's a huge factor. If you look at the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. Um, it begins to rapidly increase about 2007, and then it spikes 2011, 2012, and it's increased ever since. And 2007 was the introduction of the iPhone. 2012 was the year most people attribute to mass adoption of the iPhone amongst teens. Mm, yeah. And and if you look at Jean Twenge's book, um, iGen, and she, all her stats point to these two moments mm. in time as yeah. massively influential because it coincides with all the other bad stats. Yeah. So I think it's a big factor. So how how is it having that impact then? What is it about social media and our you know ever present smartphones that is hurting kids in this way? I think the most basic thing is just our brains were never built to receive so much information every day. If you actually if you look at the gigabytes that are or terabytes that are absorbed every day compared to the past, it's it's gazillions more, mm. um, and our brains have not got bigger and better, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's one thing. The hyper stimulation is the other. The brain was it does well when it works really hard and then gets a good break. Total downtime. There's no downtime today. We can't sit at a red light. We can't even go to the bathroom. Yeah, you know, I'm, sh- without I'm sure uh, many of the adults listening right now <laughs> feel that that yeah. same thing. You can't walk down the hall without no. pulling out your phone. No, or... it fries your brain. Mm. It really does. All this, the the buzzes and beeps and um, and and then of course there is the the comparison element via social media, uh, the bullying as well. You yeah, used to... how, how big is that? I, I think that's another another topic that seems like in recent years it's become more prominent. We used to think of bullying as someone getting shoved against a locker or, or punched after school, but really it's it's not 
not that anymore. No. It seems like it's much more um, digital. Well, I think the thing is it's constant. You can't get away from it now. You bring bullying home with you. Yeah, it's not confined to the yard. It's not confined to the corridor. It's in your bedroom now. And and it's through the night even. It, you know, it's just some of the messages I've seen are just... It's, it's terrible. Yeah, what can you say? And then, and then you've got to go and face these people yeah. each day. Yeah, and we've all seen even, uh, again, among adults, the propensity for people on social media at at this distance to say terrible things to one another, things that I don't think they would probably say face-to-face. No. There's this this lack of a filter that comes yep. with technology. Yeah, it's very impersonal and inhuman. But, you know, one other area, the pressure, the instability, the technology, I think also the spiritual element to this. There's a lot less true Christianity around. Um, therefore, there's a lot more guilt around, a lot more shame around. There's the sin itself multiplying, especially the sin of immorality, pornography. I've seen that especially with young guys, but it's not just young guys, it's girls too. But it's devastating to their mental health. And again, going back even 15, 20 years, um, the barriers to pornography were so much higher. But now it's accessible, it's available, and it's free. And it's, it's extremely hard for teen guys to resist it, and teen girls. Um, and there's something about that sin is incredibly guilt generating and shame generating and God distancing so there's a big spiritual element and, and I think the su- substance abuse too addictions are increasing and without the gospel people just don't know how to get free and, and and therefore are in this bondage at very young ages. Something like, you know, cannabis now, the, the access age is something like nine or ten. Oh, wow. So what are the yeah. chances? Yeah. I'm just struck in all this that you know, all of these struggles, even, you know, these sin issues are not not brand new. They're, they're things that humans have struggled mm. with for a long time. But there seems to be something about the technology that we now have that just makes them, it heightens them to a level that we've never maybe seen before. I know. I think if you're to, if you're to really truly label our smartphones, if they were marketed truthfully, it would be something like, get the latest mental health destroyer. Mm. And yet we're giving them to our kids Mm. without any instruction, mentoring, boundaries. It seems like there's a little bit of a, Maybe a wake up happening about just the 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 threat posed to our kids' mental health by smartphones. It seems yeah. you know apps, app developers and manufacturers of phones are starting to, but it's 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 slow. It's slow, yeah. And you're up against money because eh, there's a lot of money being generated by the addictive element of it. But yeah, even it's not just Christians who are ringing the bells here. It's it's non-Christians too. They're seeing not just the spiritual impact, they're seeing their kids just disintegrate. Mm, yeah. 
I'm looking for help. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned the spiritual side of this, that, that isn't part of the conversation for non-Christians. Um, and I wonder that's one thing that parents might wrestle with or not fully know where they, where they stand on the issue of how do we, how do we integrate our understanding of, um, these mental health issues with what the Bible says about us and the reality of sin in our, our faith, trusting God, the call to believe the gospel and um, how that impacts how we view ourselves and view others. Um, it seems like sometimes those can be placed at odds with one another or not, not fit together well. So what yep. would you say to that? So again, you've got your two extremes. Uh, you've got the all spiritual approach to this. So there's no recognition of any physical, social, mental element. And and then you've got the all-physical approach. So they just need meds and they'll be fine. And I think we have to recognize there are spiritual causes, there are relational causes, there are mental causes, there are physical causes. And, and take a holistic approach to it. But I think that's where the Christian message here has such power because even if primarily the causes are physical, mental, relational, all of these have a spiritual element to it. It's not so easy to separate. Hmm. But a lot of the anxiety and depression is related to sin in people's lives. And you think of also a wrong view of God. So you talk to kids with depression, anxiety, a lot of them have been raised in very legalistic backgrounds and their view of God is, is really horrible. Just this, well, they kind of project what they've seen onto God. So it's just, just this demanding, condemning, never satisfied, ever multiplying of rules and regulations. And they know they will never satisfy that God and there's no remedy for their guilt. And even if they get some temporary relief, it's back again. And so one of our tasks, I think, is to communicate the true God of the Bible, a God of, of, of forgiveness, the God who delights in his people, the God who wants his people to have joy in him and in his world. And just seeing God in a whole new light through Jesus Christ and, and bringing the gospel of forgiveness my my wife worked in a psychiatric ward. She's a doctor. And there was a consultant there who had worked with mental health patients all his life. Not a Christian. And he, he told my wife that 50% of the patients in these wards, they were locked. Not all locked. Some of them were locked wards, but they were inpatients. 50% of them there were there with unresolved guilt. Hmm. Like for things that they had done? Yep, yep. Hmm. Some of it false guilt, but a lot of it true guilt. And what pill can you get for that? You can. And he, I mean, he was despairing. In fact, here's the sad thing. He took his own life, that, that consultant. Yeah. But I mean, in a sense, who wouldn't when you see such misery and despair and there's nothing you can do? Yeah, there's no solution. And here we have it. Fool free forever forgiveness you you, know, you that's that's not just eternity changing that's life changing yeah yeah but we've got to get that out to young people and also a purpose to like life why am i here 
what is there to live for? You talk to young people today who have no God. Yeah, I mean, no wonder suicide rates are going up. There is nothing worth living for, they see. They, you know, they're just looking ahead to debt for decades and and just getting on the rat race and, and just miserable lives. They see so much broken relationships and they don't want that. And 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 again, we can come and we say, look, there's a reason to live and there's a purpose to life. It doesn't matter what job you do. You can serve the Lord in it and you can have the Lord's help in it. And the Lord can give you good families and just so many blessings. And even that whole area of discontent that drives a lot of depression. Again, the gospel comes along and says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And and the devil loves this. He's, you know, he we don't believe like some that all mental illness is satanic. But Every mental illness is an opportunity for the devil, mm. and he takes yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. How does all that then inform um, the truth of uh, the physical side of, of these things? How does a parent know when they're dealing with their kid, uh, maybe a kid who's not reading the Bible, and this parent knows that their kid isn't praying very often, doesn't want to be at church, doesn't want to be with other Christians, um, how do they disentangle or yep. make decisions about what to what to push on, what to suggest, what to say? I think it's easy for parents to say, well, if you won't deal with the gospel, you won't deal with your soul, you won't, well, I'm done with you. Got to start there. Yeah. But Jesus healed 10 lepers and only one came back to give him glory. It would appear only one was truly touched spiritually. But he didn't take his healing back of the other nine, right? So that's where I would start. If you can't make contact spiritually, I think out of just compassion for people and care and love, okay, well, I think the ultimate issue here is spiritual, but I, th- I think I can help you, you know, in a mm. few areas. We yeah. can put you in touch with a doctor or a counselor. and But just know that this is not going to fully resolve or resolve this for long until you get this piece right in your life. And I'm always here to help you with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how do parents know when to get a, a professional involved, a healthcare professional, a mental health professional? Um, that can sometimes probably feel like a very big step, a radical step, a step that might not be very popular with their child. Uh, it might lead to a lot of conflict. It might just even personally feel scary, like, wow, this is to that level that I need to get some professional help for my, my kid. How do parents know when it's time to do that? Yeah, I think first of all is not to overreact or too quickly react. Um, so we're in the area here of overdiagnosis. We've got to accept our kids are going to have some down weeks and they're going to have some anxious weeks. That's not a reason to get to the, you know, bring in the experts. Mm. We, we walk alongside and we say, this is part of life and, and let's push through and let's not overreact and try and be calm. And, and in many, many cases, maybe most, you know, we'll mm. get through this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just the first thing to try and calm, not deny, but just try and take a reasonable objective approach to it. I think the second thing is, say in the book, um, why am I feeling like this? There's a range of symptoms, and um, also looking not just at does he he she have all these, but the severity of them, and how long they've been going on for. 
But ultimately, you, you really want to get to the doctors. I've I found family doctors are extremely good hmm. at knowing if this is something just, this will pass or... Um, so not necessarily a, a count, mental health no, counselor, no. just a just your a doctor. A family doctor. They, they see this a dozen times a day. Yeah. And they know what to look for. They know what not to be alarmed about. They will often make a few suggestions and say, come back and see me in a couple of weeks. And again, just the sort of minimalist approach, but ramping up. If, you know, a couple of weeks, there's still no change or things have got worse, then, you know, he'll have some other suggestions. And I've found as a pastor, working together with a family practitioner, consulting together if with permission from the patients, that, that usually that can be the best way for a parent to approach this. So you're not taking all the responsibility on yourself. But I think I'd have to add, obviously, if your child is suicidal, or, you know, talking about taking their own life, or you're very worried about that, don't wait. You, you have to act. Why, why is that? Explain why, uh, especially in those kinds of severe situations, why parents, a parent might feel, I know my child. I know what he or she needs. I, I can talk to them. I, I understand them better than any random you know, doctor could. Um, explain why it's important to, to not uh, delay in getting help. Well, most of us don't know our children fully. And I think that's something that surprised me going through the teen years now with four kids. What you thought you knew, huh, well, that was a shocker. So there's always things, and we look back in our own teen years. We we didn't, yeah, my mum and dad didn't know half of <laughs> <laughs> So don't assume you know. There are always things going on you don't know about, so look out for signs, don't dismiss them. Um... There's the play safe. What's the point in taking a risk? And especially when there's help out there. Yes, you might get off with it, but you may not, and you don't get another chance. Um, that happened to me once with a member in my congregation. I had been a pastor for about six years, and without going into all the details, somebody was accused of certain things and it looked like a really bleak prospect. It was from their pre-Christian past and he took his own life and I should have seen it. I should have, I should have heeded the warning signs but I kind of thought, well, he's a Christian and he's a great guy and nah, he, he's not going to do that. Yeah. But he did and I should have known. And that lives with me. And obviously, you don't want that. You don't want it, especially if it's a child. So, you know, again, we're trying to avoid two extremes of underreacting and overreacting and just getting help, incremental help, as you see things incrementally worsening. Mm, yeah. So what role should pastors play in all this? Uh, I think um, sometimes it's... Um, maybe people have a, a default reaction on that front, but what would you say would be the ideal way a pastor could be involved with parents and children and maybe also with you know a mental health mm. professional? 
Lifeway did some research on this a few years ago and they found that the pastor was actually the one who was usually first contacted, which actually was surprising. Before parents? Yep. Uh, no, sorry, the one that parents oh, I see. contacted usually for their their loved one, not necessarily a child. But the pastor actually was involved at quite an early stage in the process, especially if that pastor had shown any sympathy and care for those with mental health issues. People can tell hmm. if a pastor is like going to be a, unhelpful, let's just put it that way. But pastors also said that though they were first contacted, they did not know what to do and they didn't know what the next step was and that they usually just referred them on or stumbled around unhelpfully. So what I say to pastors is try and build up a team in your area, in your district, your city of a doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counsellor, a biblical counsellor, get to know them. Uh, build relationships with them. They don't all need to be Christians. Um, obviously, ideally, you want that. But as long as you have Christians involved, especially focused on the spiritual, and as long as the non-Christians are not going to undermine your um, emphasis and work and aim, that can work well together, especially if there's long-term trusting relationships and so you put together a team and you say, well, you know, they need a doctor and a biblical counsellor or they need a doctor and a psychiatrist and a counsellor. And just over time, you build a team, you build a sensitivity and you're always involved. You're not just handing it over, but you're still involved. You're still caring. You're still meeting with the person. You're still checking how is this working out. And it doesn't happen quickly without stumbles but over time that way you you still you're caring directly but also through other professionals as well yeah what are some of the biggest maybe pitfalls that pastors church leaders youth pastors would want to avoid in this maybe maybe someone doesn't have a lot of experience with this or um yeah just wants to wants to do better uh, what should they be kind of aware of I think one danger is trying to do too much, trying to do it all. And you want to be that guy or woman. You want to be the one with all the answers, but you usually don't have all the answers. You have a, a degree, a level, an area of expertise, and it's to try and recognize your limits. Use what God has given you. Yeah, learn and educate yourself, but always be be conscious of, okay, I really, you know, abuse or PTSD or something like that. That's beyond me. Mm -hmm. But hey, I know someone you can go to. So I think that's the first thing. Don't don't try to do too much. Don't be scared, I think, is the other. Uh, so a lot of pastors will just, oh, I don't want to talk about this, you know. Yeah, um, feels overwhelming. Yeah. And, and either just delegate and walk away or or just push people away. You don't want people to just go to the internet and type in counselor hmm. you just don't know what they're going to get yeah yeah well david thank you so much for yeah taking the time to to speak to us speak to parents and offer both i think practical and and spiritual biblical wisdom about uh, helping their teens as they struggle with this thank you i hope it's helpful and um that 
parents had helped to minister to their kids and you know this relationship actually can be really strengthened through this mm. for life yeah yeah that was david murray on how parents can help teens struggling with anxiety and depression for more be sure to check out his book with crossway why am i feeling like this a teen's guide to freedom from anxiety and depression as well as the companion book why is my teenager feeling like this a guide for helping teens through anxiety and depression available online or at your local christian bookstore for more interviews like this subscribe to the crossway podcast on apple podcasts spotify or your favorite podcast player if you enjoyed this episode leave us a review which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.